News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The double homicide on the west side of Vancouver that shocked a lot of people just a few months ago. Two people gunned down in a white BMW X5 parked outside a multi-multi-million dollar home in Point Grey. And still, the only thing we've really heard about it is that police are looking at organized crime connections. Well, what else do we know at this point? Joining us now is Sam Cooper, Global News investigative reporter who has more on this. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So what have we learned about this situation? We've been uh, doing a deep dive, deep dive into the available documents and talking to community sources and, and police sources. And you're right, this stunned uh, uh, the whole community, but especially the Chinese-Canadian community uh, in Vancouver and right across the country in, in Toronto, because one of the victims, Wu Shumin, uh, the owner of that $7 million Point Grey mansion, she was very well connected to the business and really the the political communities in Vancouver and Toronto. These are communities that are uh, involved in sort of so-called compatriot associations with links to Chinese governments, uh, municipal and the big one, uh, the Beijing government. And uh, what we've learned from sources and documents is that Wu Shumin uh, Police are interested not only at the Vancouver level, but the federal level of sort of the the, the circles surrounding the, the two victims, Wu Shumin and Sun Yingying, because they were involved in high-level uh, community groups that liaised and met frequently with organizations of the Chinese Communist Party that are involved, uh, allegedly, uh, in, in espionage. Hmm. And at the same time, their business networks connect at a high level to a sort of entertainment industry for so-called VIPs, very wealthy people in Vancouver and Richmond. And uh, especially, they were running a high-end massage gym and clubhouse in South Vancouver. And we know from our investigation that uh, this this business sector is a dangerous one. There's some very high-level RCMP targets involved in that very same business. Yeah, I was reading through your story, which is at globalnews.ca, by the way, for other people who want to check this out. And this is the part that I found really interesting. Like, what do we know about these kinds of VIP places, that kind of business world? Well, we know from looking at documentation and the social networks available online uh, from the victims, uh, the community groups they're involved in, that uh, some of the people that would would be seen uh you know, around the club and in the same business networks are are the very same people that have come up in the Cullen Commission into money laundering. So we know the term VIP from the casino gambling industry in British Columbia that was subject of the, you know, what's called the Vancouver model of money laundering. And really, it's uh, what our sources indicate. It's the same business networks. There's a lot of businesses in Vancouver that, that cater to that VIP clientele looking to travel to Vancouver and spend huge luxury dollars and uh, in some cases what the police say uh, involved in suspected money laundering. Hmm. So how high up is the investigation into this then? Is this Vancouver police? Is it on a higher level? Well, the, this is, of course, first and foremost, uh, a homicide investigation with Vancouver police. But I can say that uh, federal investigators, and we're talking about uh, on the police side and the Canadian intelligence side, 
are interested in the broader picture surrounding uh, these two victims. Because, look, when you have people that are seen very frequently uh, rubbing elbows with the Chinese consulate leader in Vancouver, involved with people that are frequently meeting with the Toronto consulate, involved uh, in in meetings in China and Vancouver with uh, what are called overseas Chinese affairs officers. These are people that Canadian intelligence and national security say are involved in wide espionage networks. Then uh, Canadian uh, federal investigators will be uh, interested. And let me add this. Uh, You remember another horrific and and strange case. Uh, Bo Fan, a 41-year-old woman from China. Yes, she was working in a in a so-called wealth clubhouse in the South Surrey area, another, you know, very high-end mansion, and uh, involved in a, a horrific murder, uh, dumped off outside a hospital uh, in, in, in White Rock. And I can tell you that uh, police at a high level are interested in the same sort of networks. Again, we're talking about uh, people friendly with the Chinese state in Beijing and people at a high level in suspected uh, money laundering networks. This sounds like it could get very uncomfortable then for a lot of people. Sam, what about the actual circumstances of this homicide? Maybe you could refresh people's memory on that because it was quite shocking just how open it seemed to be. It, uh, of course, we know that Point Grey is a, an elite, a wealthy, uh, a, a wonderfully serene community. And you're right, uh, this shocked everyone in Vancouver that two women are found by a uh, a neighbor walking by this seven million dollar mansion peers into the white SUV and sees two women, uh, uh, sadly deceased. Okay, and and, and the police confirmed there's uh, about four shots heard the previous night around ten thirty, and that's pretty much all police have said. But what we do know is Sun Ying, the younger woman, was a a soccer pro in northern China. She came over to Vancouver to start a soccer academy, and after a few years, uh, the the older and more wealthy woman. Wu Shumin comes on board, sort of takes over the company, and they're both directors of this high-end luxury massage and uh, gym, really uh, with the appearance of sort of a, a nightclub as well in South Vancouver. Wow. So the circumstance of this one, really quite something. Uh, Sam, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. Appreciate the update. Sam Cooper is a global news investigative reporter. Now, obviously, as always, when we have Sam on, there is a lot of information because he does a lot of digging into these stories. So for the complete story that he's been working on in this case, go to globalnews.ca. You can read it all there. But that was shocking. Back in February in the news, we heard about two women found dead in a white BMW, an X5 sitting there just on the street in front of a home, very expensive home in that neighborhood. And uh, we really haven't heard very much since then until Sam's investigation here. So check that out online at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. This week, we learned a lot more about what our population looks like, how old our population is. There was new data that was released from Canada's 2021 census. And there are many people who are saying this was a wake-up call as well to government. Take some action now to deal with what we're seeing in our population, or we're going to have a lot more problems. Why? Well, that's because the data that was released showed that people 85 years of age and older are the fastest growing age group in the country. That figure was up by 12% since the 2016 census, and that is more than double the Canadian average. And in B.C., More specifically, 
the number of seniors surpassed 1 million for the first time. People who are over the age of 65 make up more than 20% of our population. That is an all-time high for provinces that are west of Quebec. So are we ready for this? Are we even preparing for this? Joining us now is BC's seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning. What did you think when you saw some of these numbers? Well, these are the numbers that those of us who work in this area predicted we would see. And so the question is, it, it shouldn't be a wake-up call in the sense that we, we know this is coming and we know that this is going to continue to come. So not only is the population of BC growing, we know that's happening, um, but the proportion of British Columbians aged 65 and over and aged 85 and over is growing at a rate greater uh, than the general population increase. And that presents some challenges. Uh, Number one, uh, people over 65, especially those 85 and over, put a greater strain on our healthcare system. They need more things from it. They need more doctor's visits, more surgeries, more uh, long-term care beds, more home care. And because the proportion of the population uh, is growing um, in the area that's not actively participating in the labor force, we also have fewer people proportionately available to provide those helps and support. So it's two issues. Okay. So when you also hear about all the stories that in the news about people having trouble finding a family doctor, getting in to see a doctor, do these two things sound like we're already seeing the effects of this? We, we are. Um, absolutely. Um, when you look at uh, a map of where the, the greatest shortages are, and there are actually shortages everywhere, but where they're most acute is in those areas where you see high proportions of the population, uh, 65 and over and 85 and over. And that's because not only is the demand higher, but the supply of the physicians, the nurses, the care aides is lower. And so that is really putting a strain on the system. So are we dealing with this? Are we preparing for this? Um, We are preparing for it. Whether it's sufficient or not remains to be seen. So we do know that the government has taken steps towards increasing the supply, for example, of nurses and care aides. They've made some recent steps towards reducing the, the regulatory burden for foreign trained nurses. They've had what appears to be a fairly successful program in bringing people in to be care aides and providing that training. That's a fairly short training regime, you know, six to nine months. A nurse takes Mm -hmm. four years and a doctor takes 12 years. The physician issue is a bit trickier. Um, It it takes a long time to train a doctor. Um, Certainly, we're going to be looking at increasing the supply of doctors, and they're doing some work in that area and also looking at this different way mm-hmm. of providing uh, doctors training. There's, there's lots of plans in place, but we clearly are experiencing a shortage of doctors on a daily basis. Is there a way for us to change how we deliver care from doctors for an aging population? Because we know, as you pointed out, you know, people who are of a certain age take up probably more time at the doctor's office. So can we reconfigure how we deliver that care? I think we absolutely can, and many of us have been talking for a number of years about this role of nurse practitioner, which I think in geriatric care can look even more comprehensive. By the time a person is well into their late 80s, early 90s, 
we're not looking at the same kinds of issues and curative approaches that we might with 35 and and 40-year-olds. And so do we need to rethink the role of geriatric nurse practitioner, for example, uh, of having a a wider scope? Most uh, people, once they're in their late 80s, their early 90s, it's about fixing short-term issues. It's about uh, being able to live comfortably. It's about enhancing your mobility. In other words, your ability to move about. It's about reducing the amount of pain that you're living with potentially um, and finding those other supports and linking them up. And I think, you know, physicians are not necessarily the best uh, discipline or profession to 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 be doing that piece of work. And, and so we may need to look at even further uh, enhancing the role of nurse practitioners. Are, are, are these discussions that you think, are they happening, you know, at the Ministry of Health? Do you, are we planning for these situations? I think there's lots of discussions, Simi. I think the challenge is it's a very fragmented system. And so, you know, one of the, there's a lot of benefits to the, to the team. We talk about team-based care all the time. But one of the downsides to team is it's a lot of people and a lot of people doing a little piece of something. Um, and what that does is it, it creates uh, an environment where things, frankly, sometimes take longer uh, to uh, move forward because there's a lot of people involved in the discussion. And sometimes it's unclear exactly who's in charge, right? Every team is right. supposed to have a captain. Um, and so I think there have been some unintended consequences to some of our good initiatives we've done in the past. And those may be impeding uh, our ability to move as quickly uh, as I think we need to move, certainly in certain areas of the province, around this access to uh, physician services. So this really was, this week, a, a wake-up call, right? Like, here it is. We said this was going to be coming. It's yeah. here. Um, yes, although I would argue it's been here uh, <laughs> for a while. Um, and so, you know, for people like me, it's hard to say I looked at this and it was a wake-up call. I, many of us this is exactly what we expected to see. I think, Simi, the problem is, and it's always been the problem, it is very difficult to get uh, governments, who at the end of the day represent the people, to deal with a problem in the future. Uh, They're very good at dealing with the problem of today uh, that's there, but it's very difficult uh, to talk about things we need to do today um, that we're going to see the results uh, down the road or things that we do today are going to cause something down the road so we can fix a, an immediate problem, but we cause, mm. cause greater problems down the road. That is a part of the issue here. Uh, and it's not just in healthcare and it's not just governments. We do it in our personal lives as well. But um, it, the challenge here is that the kinds of problems, there isn't this light switch that goes on and suddenly everything was good today and it's terrible tomorrow. It happens over time. And the solution isn't overnight either. And so the worry of many of us is there's going to be this period of time when um, the problem is trying to be fixed because it can't be fixed immediately. And there's going to be some significant hardships in that period of time before we get the fix in place. All right. Thank you so much for that discussion this morning, Isabel.
Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. That's Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate, talking about our aging population as confirmed in black and white numbers right there by Statistics Canada this week when they release data from the 2021 census. And as you heard, a wake-up call to governments, in particular here in BC, that we need to take action to deal with this aging population and the impact that has on our healthcare system. If you would like to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as Vaughn Palmer said to us earlier this morning, it's not often that you get an all-party committee of the B.C. legislature agreeing on something. They certainly did that yesterday when we heard more about this report that they have tabled about the future of policing in B.C. And one of the things they agreed on is that there needs to be some changes. The big recommendation you're hearing a lot about today has to do with recommending a provincial police force rather than having the RCMP in this province. But there's a lot that went into this report. So let's get into some of the details. Joining us now is Doug Ratley, who's the NDP MLA for Nanaimo North Couchin and chair of the Special Committee on Reforming the Police Act. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Good morning, Simi. Can we talk first about the methodology that went into this? How did the team and all the MLAs put this report together? Uh, it took us a while. We had to ask for a six-month extension, in fact, because we had such an uh, overwhelming response to our initial phase of public uh, input. And so what we did was we went to different organizations first, uh, the ministries and the government, and then to uh, advocacy groups, to police agencies, to uh, police unions, right through to uh, local government and uh, mental health professionals as well as people with lived experience. We had over 400 people submit or make presentations, and then we had 1,400 people respond uh, to our survey. So we had a lot to work with. So given that and everything you learned and what went into this report, what needs to change when it comes to policing in BC? Um, Lots needs to change. In in fact, um, our terms of reference ask us to address um, um, institutionalized uh, racism, systemic racism, and uh, decolonialization, align ourselves with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. But the main goal, I think why we came to such a unanimous decision around our recommendations was we were unanimous in our beginning. Our goal was that we would provide service equity throughout our province and that we would have higher service standards, that there would be better outcomes for people suffering mental illness and people living on the street. And in fact, better outcomes for police who have been asked to do jobs that they're not prepared for, not uh, trained for, and really aren't the best people um, to be responding to. So, So there was a lot to a lot to do, but it really goes back to the beginning of it, that we were all united in a purpose. So how do we do that? How do we achieve equity in police services all over the province? Well, we there's a number of things that need to be done. And uh, um, just to give you an example, one of the difficulties of dealing with the RCMP contract is that we have very little control over the deployment of members, the deployment of resources. They're sent to a detachment. Uh, the, the community finds out from the RCMP how many police they're getting and how bad. And then they are um, rotated through those communities every three years. So, you know, it, all members were surprised when almost every Indigenous community that came to speak to us told us they were under-policed and didn't have enough service. They didn't have the right service. They had a lot of problems with some of the service they were getting. But... Um, 
but where they were, where there were good relationships, where it was working, it was always a case of where the officer connected with the community, got involved, was empathetic to the people they were serving. And then those relationships are sort of blown up when the person leaves and we hope that they'll be restored, but there's no guarantee of that. And I think those are some of the things that we need to be able to do. We need to be able to uh, be in control of the priorities of training and education. And then we, we need to have a, um, a recruitment of officers that includes the you know, psychological makeup and then takes care of the psychology of officers as they progress through their careers. So a lot of these things just really couldn't be done um, as the current uh, contract uh, stands. So right. that was why we ended up I guess I wonder then, even in areas where we don't have the RCMP, where there is a municipal police force, are we doing those things as you describe? Because it doesn't sound to me like every police force is. Not every police force is, but uh, in order to fix these problems, you have to have some grip on the tools available to you. And uh, I think that's the main purpose of that recommendation, Um, you know, is that the province then would be in control of the direction of policing in the, in the province and be able to offer that uh, continuity. Right. So that these are big, huge changes you're talking about here, and it's hard to make those kinds of gigantic systemic changes. Is this too ambitious then? Like, can we, can this be done? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's being done. Um, there are a lot of good things happening. The Vancouver police force is over 50% non-white male um, and it's, and it's growing in its diversity. Um, the training programs in some detachments. I look to Longueuil, Quebec, where they embed new, newly recruited officers with families in the community that they're going to be serving. And then they, they essentially grow empathy for the people that they're going to be serving. All of these things are, you know, really um, progressive and helpful and have great results. And well, that's, that's what our goal is, the outcome. We want to see better outcomes for British Columbians, all British Columbians. Okay, so we know that the contract with the RCMP is still good for another 10 years. So is this a long-term issue that we're dealing with here? Yes, it is. Um, There are recommendations to be acted on immediately. Some are medium-term and some are ongoing, but that is definitely a long-term project. It's it's a, a big project, and in order to achieve it, we've looked at different efforts that are happening around the province, including in Surrey, um, one of the stumbling blocks was there's a, an, a portion of the act that says there can only be one uh, single jurisdiction of police in a, in a community, um, a single agency of jurisdiction in a community. And that makes it very difficult to transition. It's sort of a, a light switch on off at the time of transition. So leading up to that, a lot of the work that needs to be done is very difficult if you don't have uh, that component. So, so we, we embedded that as well. Right. But uh, yeah, but um, you know, a lot of our terms of reference referred to um, helping uh, people who have been marginalized in our society and people that the police are really not prepared or trained to deal with, including, of course, uh, mental health, uh, people suffering with mental health issues. Right. I think everybody agrees, yes, we definitely need to change our policing so we're dealing with more of the mental health issues. Isn't that something we can do under the current framework? Isn't this the kind of training that all police forces can do, regardless of whether they are RCMP or a municipal force? Um, it's, I, I suppose it should be, but it hasn't been. And uh, I think that um, when we when we look at the kinds of changes that we think are important in order to deliver on our terms of reference and um, increase service equity in the province, these are the, the 
it's very difficult for us to do that with a, with essentially no control over the uh, over the institution. The RCMP are uh, federal. It's in Ottawa. It's a long way away. Um, it's very difficult to uh, make changes, um, particularly to things like recruitment and deployment. Um, and those are really important components of, of service in this province. So what are the next steps here then? How does this become reality? How do you make this happen? Uh, the, re- the last recommendation of the report is that there be a select standing committee form that would uh, implement and then um, monitor the progress and then on an ongoing basis make regular reports in, on the policing act make a regular review. There are many acts in the province that are reviewed on a regular basis. Some every six years, we recommend every year there be some kind of report um, developed to report on policing in the province. But uh, the last time the the police act was substantially reviewed was 45 years ago. And and you can imagine that many of the problems that the police and that society are grappling with right now were not even on the table at that point, or at least we're much smaller. So uh, it, it, it's been long overdue, and uh, there's a lot to do. So is it significant as well that this was like all parties involved in this and everybody agreed? Uh, significant, essential, essential, uh, because, you know, I would, it, it is it could become a really uh, a divisive thing, and it's a very difficult uh subject for people um but uh when we heard from all of those british Columbians, all of those professionals all of the public servants the public health officer the um former attorneys general the current uh, attorney general and solicitor general um reports that have been written over the years it, it's just obvious that uh that the, these things uh, needed to be done, and and uh, and we're, we're we were grateful that we had this opportunity. And I have to thank uh, Dan Davies, my vice chair and deputy chair, um, all the Liberal MLAs on the committee, uh, Trevor Halford and and uh, um, Kareem Kirkpatrick, and, uh, really outstanding people. Um, Adam Olson was on the committee from the Green Party, um, and we all, you know, agreed uh, that that. This was the path forward. Now, um, it, I've been there for 17 years. Uh, this ends up being about 8% of my time there at the 15-month report. Uh, but this has been the best uh, experience of my 17-year career as an MLA. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for your interest and uh, have a great day. You too. That's Doug Routley, NDP MLA from Nanaimo North Cowichan and Chair of the Special Committee on Reforming the Police Act. This is Mornings with Simi. What a great day. It's Canadian Independent Bookstore Day taking place tomorrow, actually. It's an annual opportunity for readers of all different kinds of books to support and celebrate your independent bookstores that are all over the country. Just look for one. Go browse in there. Buy a book tomorrow. Buy a book there anytime, actually. Let's talk about how important this is. Joining us is Marianne Zedjian, who's the manager of the Book Warehouse and Black Bond Books. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Simi. Nice to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. What's the last great book that you read? Can you think of one? Oh, my gosh, about a thousand. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, the last really great book that I read was uh, Daughters of the Deer by Danielle Daniel. Are you familiar with her at all? I have not. Tell me about this. She's fantastic. So she's originally known. She's done a, a children's picture book. Uh, Sometimes I Feel Like a Fox. 
she's uh, an Indigenous Canadian woman of Algonquin, French and Scottish descent. This novel is inspired by her family's history. So she actually went back and looked through her entire family's history going back to the 1600s and found one of her ancestors, an Indigenous woman, who was a healer who was pressured to marry a French soldier in order to ally uh, her people with the French to protect them. Mm And then she's fictionalized this story and told the account of what it was like for this woman. Um, It tells her story. It tells her daughter's story. And it's just so fascinating that it's actually a true piece of Danielle Daniels' family history. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, I'm going to write that one down Mm -hmm. on my list. I was thinking one of the last books I read, because I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately, but I read The Lincoln Mm -hmm. Highway which is by Amor. <laughs> I love the mm-hmm. sound of your voice there. See, know. you know what I was going to say? Did you enjoy that? I liked it very much. I really did. I mean, I've loved all three of his novels and I know you have as well. I know we talked I have, yes. you know, about how great Rules of Civility and uh, Gentlemen in, in Moscow, Moscow are. Loved yeah, it. So I, I loved this new one as well. I mean, his, he's got such a way with words that you're just, you're drawn right into his books. Oh, so true. Now, Marianne, this is one of the reasons why I love going to an independent bookstore, because you get this kind of conversation happening with people who mm-hmm. work there. So tell me, how great, how has the book business been for independent bookstores in the last few years? It's actually been fantastic. I mean, you know, despite pandemics and weirdness, uh, it's been really, it's been really great. Oh, when, you know, when the pandemic hit, everything was crazy and uncertain and we all had to close our doors for a little while and our customers came out to support us in such an amazing way. It was fantastic. They, they really realized the importance of local independent businesses and they, they really came out to support us. So, you know, it was a strange time. We had to figure out you know, switching to an online system and figuring out how to keep people safe in our stores. And we did it. And our customers were were wonderful and supportive. Are people back to reading like those actual books, the physical books? Because I know for years there, Mm -hmm. people were worried that, okay, one, you had Amazon taking over and two, Mm -hmm. people were going to start reading on tablets, but people still love the physical book. They really do. And we find, too, that a lot of our customers who do read on tablets say they can't do it all the time. Like, it's it's handy for traveling if you don't want to carry, you know, five books on vacation with you, which I personally do. But I actually I do as well. Some people <laughs> prefer a tablet. But even people reading on tablets, most of the time, they still want to have a paper book on the go as well. It's just such a different feeling when you, you know, you flip back and forth between the pages and it, it's just so different. How do you think independent bookstores serve their communities? What is it that they do that is unique? Uh, a million things, again. Um, one, I mean, the most important thing, like you said, is that we love what we do. We love reading and we love recommending books to people. And we love picking out unique, interesting, you know, somewhat unknown books that are not the blockbusters, the huge authors that everybody knows about. We love focusing on local authors, uh, you know, people that people haven't heard of and we love being able to recommend them and really support a local author community and that's not just yeah sorry i was gonna say yeah that's the way you do it right is to get kind of right into the community and and talk to people about this and how important is it to get in there and actually like host events and and do things with the community oh it's huge it's huge and honestly we've been missing events so much over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, all of our stores host events in some way or another. At Main Street, we, at Book Warehouse Main Street, we hosted at least an event a week throughout the year pre-pandemic. And we're really looking forward to getting back into that. In fact, our uh, many of our stores are starting to host in-person events again in a, you know, a very cautious way. We're all being very careful about 
you know, space and making everybody feel comfortable. It's so valuable. And the number of, of new people that you meet who come to an event who they may not have ever been to an independent bookstore before. They may not have been to your bookstore. They may not have ever heard of this author, but they come in and then they connect with other readers in a, a safe, comfortable space. It's so valuable. So how do you decide, Marianne? Like, I have a lot of trouble when I go to a bookstore deciding what I'm going to read next. How many books do you have piled up on your bedside table? It's it's hilarious, actually, because I've got, I've, I have various different piles. I have piles of books that I've collected over the years that I've always wanted to read and I've been meaning to read. And then I have a pile of the current books that are just out that I'm super excited about that I want to get on right now. And then we, we actually have an advantage in the bookselling industry is that we get advanced copies from publishers. So jealous. So I've got a third, I know, I've got a third pile of books that haven't come out yet, but I'm really excited to read because I want to be able, on the day that book hits the shelf, I want to be able to put it in the hands of a customer who I know will love it. So I try to read a bit from each pile all the time, but it's, it's a lot. See, I tend to get stressed out if I have fewer than two or three books waiting for me to be read. If mm-hmm. I get to, like, mm-hmm. I just can't have, if I have less than that, I start to think I got to go to the bookstore and I have to get a whole bunch of more books. It's a bad habit, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Well, it's an excellent habit. Because <laughs> uh, you never want to not have the next great book to read. You want to be able to look over your to your bookcase or your table or whatever and, and pick out exactly what you want at that moment. Because you never know what you're going to be in the mood for. So what is the best time of year? I know that fall, there's always some big releases, but what's coming out at this time of year? Uh, again, there are some actually pretty big releases that have come out fairly recently as well. Um, Emily St. John Mandel has a new book out, The Sea yes. of Tranquility, which I'm halfway through right now. And oh my gosh, it's so fantastic. I am loving it. Um, there's a, a new uh, mystery out. Uh, Iona Wishaw, if you're familiar with her, she's a local mystery author of the ninth book in her Lane Winslow series, Framed in Fire. That just came out. Uh, so many, I can't even think. Well, then people should come and visit you for sure. So tomorrow is Canadian yeah. Independent Bookstore Day, which is great. Go visit an independent bookstore. Marianne, mm-hmm. if people want to come and see you, where can they find you? I will be at Book Warehouse Main Street all day doing everything because we have so many exciting things going on at each of our stores. We have uh, some of our stores have local authors in to sign books. We're doing prize draws. We're doing giveaways. We're doing a, a blind date with the book. So everybody who buys a book at one of our stores gets a free, a free blind date book. So you don't know what it is, but you might find your favorite new author. Oh, I love this. Okay. Sounds like fun. Marianne, have a good time tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. That's Marianne Zadjian, who's the manager of the Book Warehouse and Black Bond Books, the one on Main Street in particular. Turn at Main and King Ed if you want to go check that out. It is Canadian Independent Bookstore Day tomorrow. So find that independent bookstore in your neighborhood. Go and pay them a visit. Ask them what's good. And then, you know, follow through on the recommendations and see how it goes. Because honestly, if, even if you don't love, love, love the book, it's still a book that you hadn't read before and you'll probably learn something from it. And it's a great thing. So 